Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the show. Uh, for this episode, as promised, we're looking back at Kitchen Confidential, Anthony Bourdain's 2000 memoir, expose, collection of nonfiction. I guess maybe talking about the form is not a bad way to start. Like, what genre is this that's part of the fun of it? Um, hard to believe it was 20 years ago, as we said in the last episode, as we were kind of prepping for this show. It both feels like Kitchen Confidential came out a longer time ago, but then it was only 20 years, only a couple years since um, Anthony Bourdain died. I think what's so fascinating rereading this here is he is not the Bourdain he becomes um, mm-hmm. in, in many ways, but in many ways he is. And I think that to see the seeds, uh, to see the acorn and the oak tree, I guess, at one and the yeah. same time and, and see the variance, but also the sameness between them is one of the things that really um, jumped out to me. Rebecca, tell me about the first, but your first Bourdain memory, and then maybe your first Kitchen Confidential memory, if they're not one and the same thing. Yeah, I think my first Bourdain memory, and I wish that I had known at the time, like how important he was going to end up being to me. So I could have soaked it in properly. But I, I'm pretty sure my first memory was just seeing episodes of No Reservations on mm-hmm. TV. Yeah. Um, I was gra- I graduated from college and started grad school in 2005 when No Reservations debuted. And I've I loved that show and I've seen all the episodes a jillion times now. You know, like if it's on cable, I'm going to stop. Um and I, I so I don't remember. Like I think it was a, one of those very unremarkable watched something on TV that I liked and then just kept wa- kept watching it. Mm-hmm. Um and I read Kitchen Confidential a couple years after that. Um, I think we had moved to Richmond by the time that I read Kitchen Confidential, which would have made it like 2008 or so. Mm -hmm. So I would have had a few years of Bourdain in my life. Um, But the internet wasn't really a thing. I didn't have like full context for how he came on the scene. And I think only in the last couple of years, as I've read a ton of food literature and like looked at culture in a different way, did I have any sense of really how important Kitchen Confidential was but that was my first experience was no reservations and then going back to the book yeah uh same i think very similar I, and he's he's had a, enough tv shows that i'm not i can't even be sure i know what the name of the show was because let's be honest they were all tony bourdain travels and eats right, right. i mean that all the shows <laughs> they they all the, ver, the the particular format runtime platform network they all were trying to capture, I think, whatever that thing is that people and you and I and you know anyone who's a Tony Bourdain fan likes, which we we should talk about. But he was the show. He was mm-hmm. the product. His sensibility, his sense of humor, his taste, his worldview, his rhythms, his attitude, his affect, um, his look. Like so it's all wrapped up into a very, very appealing package. Especially then when some of the nastier parts of his life. And I think it's fair to call them nasty. And even even mm-hmm. I was surprised to remember that he does kind of put a veil over, I think, the worst bits. Like scoring oh, yeah. heroin on Ninth Avenue. And 
I, essentially being multiply unfaithful to his girlfriend slash wife. Like you have to put the things together. And then there's some other pieces of it too, about the, the culture of the kitchen that he describes that he would later recognize and, mm-hmm. um, you know, wish he had had a better uh, perspective on, which we should talk about too. But how much of the later Tony was a evolved version of the Anthony Bourdain you get here? Yeah, I think you're right that all of the shows were Anthony Bourdain travels and eats, but there's a real difference between like early seasons of no reservations, young, like younger, 40 something Anthony Bourdain and parts unknown 2017, 2018 Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. 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 There's a sort of, there's a like Epicurean appreciation of food and cooking and pleasure that runs throughout them and a curiosity about people and culture. But the early ones are, much more like a performative is a word that I came back to a few times through the re through rereading it. But the early seasons I think are they're darker. He's more invested in coming off a certain way. And the later ones is a much represent, I think a much deeper or reveal a much like deeper and abiding interest in the world um, and like investment in how the world will be Um, that the Tony Bourdain who wrote, that New Yorker piece in 1999 that led into Kitchen Confidential either wasn't interested in or didn't want to like show his hand mm-hmm. that he cared about. But there's an earnestness in the later work um, and a real, I think, intention to do something that makes a difference and means something that, that yeah. came through. But that what you said at the beginning about getting to see the acorn and the oak tree, like I think that's one of the things that makes this such a fascinating book and then such a fascinating body of work is like very rarely do we get to see someone evolve in public thinking over the course of 20 years and to evolve so significantly. Right. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Scribner. Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman is a collection of seven stories in which characters pursue their obsessions on paths to glory and destruction, while all around them their worlds twist and warp, oscillating between reality and impossibility. On display throughout is Cotman's ability to reveal truths about the human experience, about things like friendship, love, betrayal, bitterness, all through whimsy, horror, and fantasy. Elegiac in tone, imaginative, and humorous in their execution, the character-driven stories in Weird Black Girls challenge, incite, and entertain. The author's last book was named one of NPR's Best Books of the Year and was a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award, with reviews appearing in The New York Times, Wired, BuzzFeed, and Locus, among other publications. Definitely make sure to check out Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman. And thanks again to Scribner for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris 
is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. I think the thing that you're kind of describing is the emergence of an ethical core that was really a secondary characteristic in Kitchen Confidential. Like, there's some stuff about how he treats people, and you can tell he's a loyal friend, if 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 not a sort of realpolitik chef and employer. Mm-hmm. Um, but he cares about his friends, and I think he tends to like people. And frankly, part of his story is the smittenness uh he has for this first group of cooks he meets in the dreadnought in provincetown mm-hmm. <laughs> when he's 18 year old and the way he describes this um motley band of cooks and you know one metaphor he continuously uses for kitchens and cooks and uh, you know a uh, 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 behind the counter staff is he calls them pirates a lot yeah and highwaymen and, he, and yeah. highwaymen and rogues but pirates is multiple times and he contrasts that later in the book with, you know, not everyone has to do it this way um, when he's talking about Scott Bryan, but he's attracted to that sort of outlaw camaraderie, but that's not actually a pirate because they're working within the domain <laughs> of the capitalism and wealth. And so, like, there's a liminality to Bourdain where he doesn't want to be outside, but he doesn't, he kind of, he doesn't want to be inside. He doesn't want to be inside. He definitely wants to be on the edge, like edginess yeah. and not sort of a pejorative, but actually a place in culture, in capitalism, in ideas. And then later on, you see him looking for edges, whether it's in Cambodia or Cuba or other places in America. Um, and in, I have a different version than you. I have the updated edition, mm. whatever that is. And he talks about, he can't, he doesn't think he can go back to New York. And mm. one of the reasons I think he can't go back to, because it's a center, right? And yeah, he wants yeah. to be on edges. So that's one thing that's, that's another, that's an acorn into oak situation, this, this, interested in being on the edge always was there and it continued through the the later work. Yeah, I think there's a real like swashbuckling quality to the voice here and that he is setting himself and like the group of guys in that first kitchen and then really all the other kitchens that he runs. He's setting them up as being like the antithesis of the uptight French cook. Yeah, right. Um, and of those like quiet, orderly, Le Bernardin, Eric Repair <laughs> kitchens, mm-hmm. which makes it even more interesting that later on they become best friends. <laughs> um, but the Kitchen Confidential was so much, I think, like an early Bourdain release, so much about defining himself in opposition to yes. the establishment. Yes. And the later work just becomes about defining himself sort of period um, or understanding his place in the world. And he does even make it explicit near the end of kitchen confidential that he values that like existence on the margin. I think margin Mm -hmm. is the word he uses there and people who exist on the margins that he finds that to be like where the good, interesting stuff happens. Yeah. And he has a respect for the work product of the very, um, almost militaristic kind of kitchen. Like in the later mm-hmm. chapters of Kitchen Confidential, he has a, it's not even a begrudging respect. It's like, I admire what they do. That's just not how I'd want to live my life, which is an interesting you know, sort of tension of his admiration for many different things, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, that is awesome, but also not what I want to be. And that's, uh, that's okay. I mean, his real disdain is for the, the middle, right? The, the, the Applebee's, the Olive Gardens, the people who are, 
half-assing it really like he 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 what if you're gonna do the um clean whites whispered tones kitchen whole ass that mm-hmm. or if you're gonna do this i don't know gonzo maverick outlaw thing do that um and the in between is hard for him to find a place that makes sense to him yeah he says at one point this job requires character and endurance and he talks about character over and over and i think you're right that like it it takes character to execute that very high-end traditional french Mm -hmm. kitchen discipline um and it takes character of a different kind to exist every day in the kind of kitchen that he loved and the kind of kitchen that he ran at least at the time that he wrote this and it I, I think we could talk about john for a minute but let's talk about the publication history i mean he had written um a very popular article in the new yorker called don't eat before reading this which became sort of the meme lord version of kitchen confidential even after the publish which is the stuff about don't eat fish on mondays and squeeze bottles and muscles mm-hmm. and like before there was a buzzfeed kind of a listing this would have <laughs> been a great buzzfeed kind of a listing right you can see yeah. why people really revealing found the, this movie right yeah revealing that the bread gets reused and, yeah yeah <laughs> apparently that was that was like showing there was no wisdom in Oz or something like that. I was like, I, I, that didn't strike me as being particularly relevatory, but I've lived in a, a post, you know, it came out when I was 22 and just come out of college. I didn't know anything about anything and still really don't, but that the bread was reused was not like, <gasps> oh my God, kind of a situation to me. But yeah, this book was it's... immediately popular and he got some backlash for it, for sure. It's never been out of print in 20 years. When he died, um, it returned to the New York Times bestseller list. He was a writer before this. He wrote a couple of novels. His mother, which I was surprised to see, and I she died recently, and I read her mm-hmm. obituary about how she was a copy editor and um, I think other kinds of work at the New York Times. So he had access to the, the upper echelons of the New York literary world where he could get a placement in the New Yorker and he knew people. And that's glossed over here, too. There, there's a little bit of hand-waving about some of that piece, which is fine. It's not a book about writing. It's not a book about publishing. But I think it is important to remember that he was not... I don't know. He was not some of the. He was not an Ecuadorian who wrote this book. Right? Yeah, I he, mean, that's. I right. think that's important to remember. I think he wasn't plucked out of obscurity. Is no. important, to, and it feels maybe like he was plucked out of yes. obscurity, or he allows it to feel that way. And I'm, I'm assuming that a large part of this conversation that we'll get to later is all the ways that this book would be different <laughs> if yeah. published today. Um, but one of those is like w- that we have a different kind of conversation around privilege and access now mm-hmm. than we were having in 2000 when he wrote this. But I think there is an awareness of that. And a, the later on evolved Bourdain did and would have acknowledged the things that supported him, the systems and structures that supported him and having that access. But you can see him, you can see the acorn of it in Kitchen yes. Confidential that he breaks really meaningful ground in this book, talking extensively about the cooks and the dishwashers and the busboys and the night porters, people who are largely Latinx immigrants who do the like very essential and often unglamorous day in, day out work of making mm. those kitchens, whether in, you know, places like the dreadnought or high end Leal work and that the chef is the one who gets all the glory, but he's he continually goes back to like, these are the people that do the work. Uh, The way that it's written comes off now as dated and a little fetishizing. I I think that like if he wrote it the, this exact same way and this book came out in 2020, there would be a lot of vocal and justified criticism of the way that he talks about 
race and immigrant status and, you know, these you know, brown people who are willing to do like he fr- put, frames it as like who are willing to work hard and willing to do yeah. these jobs that like the privileged white boys don't want. But there's no analysis of like, why are they in the position where these are the only jobs that are accessible to them? Um, it's very much a product of its time in that way. Um, but I think we can, I found it really important to remember him doing that at all. Like it wasn't just, it wasn't just talking about the bread being reused and don't eat fish on Mondays. It was like someone who is becoming a well-known cook and making a name for himself, pointing out to you, like, it's Mm -hmm. not the white guy in the tall hat who makes this thing go. It's all these people behind the scenes and here's their story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it would. To, I mean, I think we can criticize it, or not criticize, but even maybe not even that strong. I'm kind of not inclined to criticize, but to note yeah. mm-hmm. those moments, right? Like, yeah. I have a sympathy for Bourdain. I like Bourdain. I like this book. 20 years ago, knowing what his life story is, like, he, he didn't have the tools he would later have to think about these oh, things yeah. differently. And so our cultural consciousness was different. Yeah, right. It just what the expectations around all of it were different. Like, the way he spoke about these things later in his life and uh, and really the way that he talked about especially gender and feminism were very mm. different. And you, and you do see the seeds. Like, he is... He's ready to, I think he was, he's ready to listen to those things, but he just hasn't heard the right message yeah. quite yet mm-hmm. about how to think mm-hmm. about it there too. Um, you know, so some of the stuff that became the most popular was the stuff like for, I guess on the diner side, the people that go to restaurant side, there's interest to it. And then there's the part of that's the people who've worked in the restaurant hospitality industry saying, oh my God, I can't believe you're saying the quiet part loud about the restaurant industry. And then for those of us who go to restaurants, there is... You don't see behind the curtain. You know, like you see the open kitchen, but even those things are staged in a certain kind of way. <laughs> and you know, a lot of the things that actually goes into making a restaurant work at specific scales and whatever was relative revelatory and fun. So it works on a lot of different levels. I mean, one thing I found coming out of this the second time was just thinking, I would I want a kin- kitchen confidential of like every single industry. Maybe there is oh, one yeah. already, but like mm-hmm. every single I, I don't like movie theaters, plays, garbage, you know, like what whatever there's a thing that's a thing out in the world. I'm sure there's a book out there that an Anthony Bourdain in that industry could write. Um the closest one I could think of that I personally have experience with is um Jim Balfour's Ball 4 which came out in 1971, which was the first great really truth-telling book about a professional athlete, like what it's like to be a professional athlete. Um, Jim Balfour pitched in the 1954 mm. World Series for the Yankees, but then talked about, and that book ages terribly. And uh, it's like the things that are bad about Bourdain's portrayal and you know dis- discourse about certain things are way worse then. But it, at the very, at the, what you cannot say about it that wasn't willing to take risks about honesty. And that's the sort of thing. But that's a great title. I think it's a wonderful title as a book. Um, mm-hmm. It reads spectacularly well. Let's be honest. He's a good writer. He's a great he's writer. A, he's, a, he's a great writer, and he cared about writing. And I think there are certain vectors that makes Bourdain able to do his thing. And one of them that he cares about language, and he was a reader, even though he dropped out of college after, was it one semester or something like that? Yeah. And so yeah. outside of his high school education, his... His literary education was as an autodidact, but he reads Orwell and he makes explicit Mm -hmm. reference to, I mean, let's be honest, the kind of things a 24-year-old kitchen person might read, like sort of a gonzo, hardcore, edge of the world, you know, the Hunter S. Thompsons and stuff of the world. There's a big fan of Apocalypse Now, but he cared about writing and it comes through. And I would love to know what the editing process was like, how much editing there really was, because it has a personality, it has a style. 
that's consistent. And there's some there's some mannerisms. There's some uh, Baroque pieces, and maybe it'd be fun to look at some of the particular Bourdain ticks. And I think it's just part of the mm. the charm of it. But he's a good writer. This is easy to read, and it reads like. I don't know. What would you say about the style? I was trying to think of how to describe the style, which is a notoriously difficult thing to do. But what is the Bourdain voice about? You know, you were saying on the we just finished recording our weekly news show podcast like 20 minutes ago. And you were saying on that while we were previewing this, that he writes the way that he talks. Yeah. And I think that's true. And it's a compliment in memoir that you can read the book and hear the guy's voice in your head that there is like, there's a swagger to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a like awareness of his uh, Bourdain is self-aware and there's an awareness of his appeal. He knows how he's coming off. He says in the introduction to kitchen confidential that it's intentionally provocative and he likes the idea of ruffling some feathers. He wanted to like poke at the industry and sort of get people, you know, like get their dander up and just to, I think just a great, Mm. just a great writer. Like I've read the book now, I think three times that I listened to it on audio once and they're both wonderful experiences. Like I think audio just wins because getting to hear him deliver it is is the best. Um, But just, I think a really excellent writer who had an awareness of voice and just a very clearly defined voice. The style is like, I keep coming back to like swaggery and swashbuckling and he wants to shock you a little bit. And then he knows that he's trying to, to shock you. So I think you feel the delight too in the way that he's telling the story. And there's some awareness of like, maybe the thing I'm saying isn't so politically correct, but I'm going to say it anyway, because there's going to be some value in doing it this way. Like just really wanting to be provocative um, with no, and and wanting to be provocative in a way that you can really only be when you don't feel like it's going to matter. Like, he mm. did not anticipate the success of the book. He writes about, you know, ultimately getting to travel the world and being so surprised that people in like New Zealand and Japan and Germany and all over said that they felt seen and represented by what he wrote, that he told their story too. And I don't think he had any sense that that was really going to happen. Like if you think a jillion people are going to read your book, I think you rein it in a little more. It's a little scarier, but he is very liberated here to just like do the thing because he doesn't think it's going to go anywhere and that sort of first like real first entrance to step out in that way you only get to do that one time and he just went all the way today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron books publisher of the familiar by lee bardugo this is one i'm actually super excited about i liked lee bardugo's other adult fantasy books And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. 
haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet, we dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Um, Let's see what else to say. Yeah. And that he, I guess the other thing that's worth noting is he's 44 when this book's come out. He's, as you can tell in Kitchen Conventional, he's walks some roads uh, in a lot of different ways. He's describes... I, I thought about it later. I should have counted the number of jobs he had that he explicitly mentions, like 24 different oh, at, least at least mentions of different, you know, even if it's only a week or a day. But the the catalog of restaurants from, you know, Pino's high end where he was the executive chef for like 10 days all the way to, I guess, being a dishwasher, the dreadnought, the lowliest mm-hmm. um, position. That's not the farthest he would fall after having some of the highest positions. But it's also impossible now knowing how he died and in hindsight um, maybe should have guessed struggles mm. um, with mental health. It's impossible not to see the shadows here. Yeah. Did you feel that at all? Yeah. Yeah. This was the first time that I had gone back to mm. Kitchen Confidential since he died and it is impossible not to see it there. The way that he writes about sort of like the obsessiveness about the work, um, the ways that it harmed his interpersonal relationships, uh, like all the drug use and the, mm. the hints that he gives about his emotional state that like fed into that drug use and the way that like the drug use then fed the cycle. Mm-hmm. Like he pull, he doesn't reveal a lot of that here, but it is, I think impossible to like, there are a couple passages where he talks about like waking up in the morning and his whole body is hurting and he's smoking his sixth cigarette while he's thinking about all the work mm-hmm. that he's going to do that day. And it's like, this is not a happy guy. No. Yeah. Uh, you can, yeah, you see some of the demons or at least like there's a hint that there are, demons there yeah he portrays them sort of as especially between jobs like like he mentions like after he gets off heroin and loses he's on methadone and he's doing coke and he gets between jobs he has these long stretches he describes as sort of you know sitting around in his apartment watching daytime tv and not leaving the apartment and the christmas tree has been in there since so i was like oh mm-hmm. that's a depressive episode yeah like it, it seems like just sort of languidly like an interregnum like a break between like he describes working in these kitchens like these war zones, like this is like shore leave or between the wars or something else like that. But no, or at least now it's hard not to read them as Mm -hmm. depressive episodes of a kind, I think. Yeah. And there was a real thing in culture, like, like in pop culture in the late nineties and early two thousands that did glorify and celebrate. Like we're not far off of Kurt Cobain dying at the point that this book comes out that like really glorified and celebrated that like dark depressive, my life is difficult and I've created art out of it 
sort of thing. Like the conversation we were having about mental health was really, really different then. And it's interesting that he doesn't go that way. Like he doesn't glorify the really dark stuff, but he does gloss over it. Yeah. Um, I use the phrase, put a veil over it, which I think I first picked up. I can't remember from who for it. Cause it's not really gloss. Cause it's not, it, that to me implies like shining it out, like polishing yeah, yeah, it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. But like the, the, just to kind of put it to the side or just sort of cover the portrait of that piece and for all of us talk about being honest, that's the one place he doesn't want to go mm-hmm. in, in this. And this isn't the right book. It's his first book. He's a first writer. But he also doesn't go there later. And not to say that he should have or shouldn't have, but in talking about his life and now the person we know is Bourdain and the arc we get to know from him, you get to see, it helps see that this also is a performance. This isn't just truth telling. This yeah. is a performance where truth telling is part of the performance, but there are closets and there are basements and there are parts of it that get mentioned and you're left to see it as almost boys will be boys for lack of a better term. And I use that in the way that it's problematic too, Mm -hmm. right? Like that it's that, well, he's just, you know, people do drugs and he's a rock, rock stars do drugs and that's our mental model. And I guess it's okay without, without opening a chance for us to things like, Oh, wait a minute. There's something else going on here. There's something else that goes on when he drops out of school. There's something else that goes on all along the way um, that I think is hard not to see as sad. Mm -hmm. For lack of a better term, it's just sad. Yeah, there's a lot of performative masculinity throughout the book. And it's impossible to, I think, through the lens of 2020, to know that, to be able to read that and to know what we know now about all of the ways that like our culture fails, especially men in mm. discussions about mental health and vulnerability yeah. that like, I think you have to, that you have to have a reading of his life that includes those things that at least earlier on, there's a real investment in this performatively masculine pirate highway man, you know, rock star pot smoking and then chain smoking. And then he's drunk a lot. Um, that sort of quality that he was trying to give off and, and the fact that we can see that there are these things with mental health going on um, in the story. And it's interesting that I think later, later on in the TV shows, like as he gets older and is, I think more comfortable with the ways that his story is entwined with the stories about the world that he's trying to tell more of it comes out on the TV shows Mm. that like, it's not shocking or like, it wasn't shocking in 2018 that he died the way that he died. Cause I think we had developed more of a sense of him, but it was from the TV shows. There's not written work of his that really gets into what his emotional life was like. Do you want to talk about, is there a favorite, let's do this. Is there, you have a favorite chapter, a favorite section? I love, it's like a a three page stretch pretty early in the book when he talks about eating his first oyster. Yeah, that's a classic. (laughs) It's a classic of memoir writing, right? It's a classic of memoir. Yeah, it's a classic of memoir writing. It is one of the most um, memorable passages about food and eating. And I've read a lot of Mm. things about food and eating. And I think that that, passage and then some of the stuff that he says later in the book about good food and good eating are about risk and your body is not a temple it's an amusement park enjoy the ride um like i read these things i like i read it first relatively young in my adult life and it really did shape my understanding of like you know i 
grew up in the 80s and the 90s in the suburbs. My mom like had a limited range of things that she cooked and I wanted to go out into the world mm. and like be a worldly person and like you know experience food and culture and learn to be a good cook and so much of it now like in a way that I didn't realize until I've gone back to this was like the the kernels of the way that I think about what food and eating mean to me and what it means inside travel as well are born out of that first reading of Kitchen Confidential and of him delighting in eating that first oyster, shocking his family that he's doing it because like oysters aren't a big thing at that mm -hmm. point yet. And what that experience means to him and like what it opens up. I just, I love that. What's yours? Do you have a favorite? I, I, that, um, my favorite section, I think, and maybe it's because it's a microcosm of the whole is a day in the life where he talks mm -hmm. about just a day of running a kitchen <laughs> and what it, what it entails. And I think it, it balances the reportage with the memoir in a really interesting way, especially the stuff he would come to do later. I think my favorite Bourdain writing ever is a, he does a profile. I think it's in medium raw where he profiles the, the guy at Le Bernardin who yeah. just breaks down the fish every day. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, That's a great one. I think in terms of tone and pacing and observation and appreciation and insight, it's, it's the best Bourdain writing about externalities where he's not the subject. Like he's part there and he doesn't write himself out of it, but as an appreciation for someone else's craft and kind of a soul, a soul of food and a soul of what he appreciates about cooking and restaurants. Um, that's my favorite. I, I think you should listen when writers tell you their origin story. And I think you, to point out the oyster one is, is a great place to at least say that's a big bang because there's so much there. There's so much there that you can use to leverage, you can leverage into understanding at least how Bourdain presents himself to us, but he, he, I think he's even telling himself about himself that he doesn't even know he's telling because there's, it's it's crucially not in a kitchen, right? Yeah. It's crucially in opposition to his parents' expectation. It's crucially something that he understands to be marginal and maybe even disgusting, but his pleasure of it is firstly the pleasure of the oyster, but the secondary pleasure is a finding pleasure in something other people find disgusting. And I think that's a key Bourdain trait. He like he likes liking things other people don't like. He likes knowing other things people don't know. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think you can apply that to a lot of the other things he does cuz he doesn't he doesn't mind saying this person can do something I can't or won't. But what he doesn't like saying is that person knows something I don't about the kitchen, the, the world of kitchen mm -hmm. and cooking. Um, his desire to be master of aware, he's not just self-aware, he's meta-aware of the whole board, which makes him a great um, snitch, right? Uh, for the world of kitchens. <laughs> um, but in this moment, like it's so, that, the, that he likes the oyster, and that moment I think, you could run that trace throughout how he describes a lot of different things. Yeah, I think so. I just, the book is sitting next to me and I had that page marked, so I just, picked it up because I do think you're right that he's he's telling us like really where he came from mm -hmm. or he and he doesn't necessarily realize that this is the like the whole bit of the origin story but like I had had an adventure tasted forbidden fruit and everything that followed in my life the food the long and often stupid and self-destructive chase for the next thing whether it was drugs or sex or some other new sensation would all stem from this moment I'd learned something viscerally instinctively mm. spiritually even in some small precursive way sexually and there was no turn Turning back, the genie was out of the bottle. My life as a cook and as a chef had begun. Food had power. 
Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, we could use the, the the eating the oyster metaphor for several different moments. And I think the next most important moment in his development, and I'd like to know if you agree, is when he walks into the kitchen of the Dreadnought, and he kind of falls in love with this band of people that are outcasts. And he's like, these guys are cool, and nobody knows it, but I know it. Yeah, I know and- they're cool. And, like, he's also an outcast in a way that he only gives us little glimpses of. But, like, the guy who he was before he walked into the kitchen at the Dreadnought had, like, walked around the campus of Vassar with a sword hanging from his belt. Basically the worst possible person. (laughs) Right? Like, the worst person in the world. Not cool. Like, I think one of the the things that made Bourdain so compelling and so appealing was that he was – deeply cool in the way that the most cool people are well they where they don't believe at all that they're cool because he came from being like a tall skinny kid with hair hanging halfway down his back and a like sword on his belt Mm -hmm. (laughs) to like really this whole other thing but that's i think you're right that that next moment is walking into the dreadnought and this like oh here's the next adventure and i think you can look at his career and his life really in that way that he's right on that page and like that's the self-awareness that i was talking about like early in his career he has this awareness that it's about the next thing and that the search for the next thing and that feeling of adventure and risk is what lit him up and that's also something that leads people into experiences like heavy drug use, you know, like, what is this going to be like that real hunger for experience in a way that's unmoderated and down later on, I think he learns to moderate it more, or he at least comes to understand like that not every experience that's risky and adventurous is a valuable one, but to be able to like pinpoint the kernels of it is really powerful. Yeah. It's, he, he at various times seems to mistake for whatever reason, whether it's mental health or philosophical or whatever, the sense of um, discovery with thrill seeking, right? Mm-hmm. Like that they get, get messed up sometimes. Like drugs is a fairly easy um, method of thrill seeking, but it's not a great avenue for discovery right, right? necessarily. And he does, he has an affinity for the marginalized too, and there's some exotics, there's exotization and fetishization in some of these. Some of it, there's a certain sideshow appreciation. Like the way he describes, there's a couple of long sections about um, his friends, colleagues, fellow cooks. <laughs> I think underrated as a writer of character, as a portraiturist, yeah. right? Like yeah. he's really good on Bigfoot and Adam, what's his last name? And his. The Baker, yeah. And Stephen, his longtime Sufish. Like he has, he, he, he admires the, the perfect chef. But his heart is with the miscreant genius mm-hmm. who can make amazing bread, but can't seem to not get evicted out of his apartment, right? Yeah, I love, I think that profile of Adam, last name unknown, is so excellent because I think we all have like one person like that in our lives, or you can at least imagine it. The person that's like, damn it, like, why have I picked up the phone for you again? <laughs> It's because the bread is so good. <laughs> well, he's another oyster, right? He's kind of gross right. and annoying, and you, you got to shuck it and shell it. But boy, the bread is good. Boy, the oyster's good. He'll put up with a lot for that. And the putting up with and- a lot is, I guess it's another through line, too, is a admiration, a pride in just physical endurance yeah. that runs throughout the book that I, I didn't quite remember the first time, but... The physical, the physicality of cooking, which I did know, but Bourdain's portrayal of your hands and your burns and your cuts and your feet and your mm. back and the sweat and the heat and the blood, like it is a super visceral, 
profession and he captures it in a way I think you could miss how good he has at the body being a character itself. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think also just the underlying generosity of the ways that he writes about people that like a lot of this is dark and pirate stuff and like look at these outcasts. But there is this real underlying generosity that I think comes out a lot more in the later work and in the TV work as well of like this uh, uh, the bread guy is a perfect example of like what a disaster of a human but mm-hmm. look at this thing that makes him beautiful like i think bourdain at least comes across as very good at like finding the beautiful thing to be celebrated about these people that he encounters and like accepting that and letting it be enough to justify all the other stuff that he has to deal with. And then later when he starts traveling the world and he starts writing books about that and making TV about it, it becomes, it's so defining that he's in these often, you know, difficult, scary places. And he's looking for like, but where is the beauty and where is the pleasure and what is the thing to be celebrated? And how do all these things live alongside each other? How does the really difficult, gross stuff live inside the same person as something really beautiful? How does all the really difficult, gross stuff live inside the same society as Mm. some things that are really beautiful? I guess as a, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to understand how books work, but also how people work to, to see what they praise even begrudgingly, but then and see what they slag. Mm. And I, I mentioned, you know, the Olive Gardens and the Applebee's of the world, though he does speak fondly of like the Applebee's is the only place in this town and the margaritas were cheap. So he finds something there. What do you, it's even hard to articulate. He does, there are things he, there are kinds of people in the food world and the world at large, I would imagine he doesn't like, and he does slag them, but it's not even the fools necessarily, the people that are over the head. Like I think of the kindly older gay couple that opened their mm-hmm. soul food. He doesn't think he doesn't think they're sophisticated, but he doesn't think badly of them. Like he has a tender spot for them because they're doing something they believe in. C- can you articulate who, what kind of worldview or identity does he seem to be reacting against? Because I want to say it's his parents, but what do they represent? Weirdly, mm, I can't quite get my yeah. I can't quite wrap my head around. I think that I think you're like circling around it, talking about the way that he values like hard work Mm. and endurance and that the thing then that he rejects is laziness or doing something the easy way right? Um, or people who get access to things the easy way, like, which is interesting given that we know he like his background has some privilege in it, but his life in kitchens was not defined Mm -hmm. by that, that, um, he slags on, you know, like the rich white kid who just came out of yeah, culinary school and doesn't want to wash a dish. Mm-hmm. Um, who he he's Bourdain did not appreciate people who thought they were above something. Yes. And there's real celebration on the page of the person who will jump in and do whatever the dirty task is, you know, and the chef who recognizes that his job is to run the restaurant and that if like, he's got to be the one to plunge the toilet that day, then he's going to do it. I think there was a real, um, value of humility. Yeah. Yeah. Humility, um, a groundedness. He calls, he calls what he liked the best, the street level cooking. And later that would become to mean something different when you talk about street food, especially around the world. But this idea of being on the line, like, you know, he even explicitly mentions the militaristic, origin of a lot of the jargon but being on the line being in the trenches being in the galley you know like a galley mm-hmm. kitchen like on a naval um uh you know a maritime vessel uh 
Yeah, the 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 kid, the white kid who doesn't want to do dishes is one. I think the other is whatever was represented by the. I think it's probably a. He doesn't say it by name, but Planet Hollywood that he worked in for a minute or something, or a hard rack cafe or something like that. Mm. There's just, I don't even know what you would call, I mean, we know it when we see it, right? But it's a a front, a pretense, a, uh, I don't know. It's not, I'm not even sure authenticity is right. It's, it's un- inauthentic, but it's also a cashing in on something other than the sweat of your brow and the quality of your cooking and your willingness to do the work. Um, you're selling something, something other than that. He doesn't like at all. Yeah. I think he was not into the gimmick. And yeah. The gimmick, I guess that's a good way of doing it. Yeah. But what's represented by the gimmick? Like, like but emerald, what is it about the slagging the on emerald, like emerald represents the gimmick I yeah. think, in, in the book. And later on it would be like, he had a great time poking fun at Guy Fieri. <laughs> <You> yeah. <know? laughs> that it's that like mm-hmm. you should, I think Bourdain really wants the world of food and cooking to be a meritocracy that you get um, recognition because you worked hard and you made good food, whether it was like lowbrow food that you worked hard to make in the kitchen at the dreadnought or, mm-hmm. um, or your Eric repair at Le Bernardin. And you're like the most disciplined Buddhist chef ever um, that he wants that to be true and his sensibilities are very offended by like you can just be a guy with a catchphrase on the food network and open a restaurant and make a jillion dollars that doesn't it doesn't work as fair to him yeah Um, i guess that's the 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 opposite of the ecuadorian night porter right the the bam catchphrase shiny you know almost an infomercial quality of production value mm-hmm. and depth <laughs> right. um, to it. He really dismissed, like even in this, he walks back in the, the, the epilogue. I have the, the, the um, critique of Emerald because what mm-hmm. he's heard yeah. from other people is he can actually cook. Like he's actually yeah. done the thing, even the stuff he doesn't like can be forgiven. Interestingly, if he understands, believes, or is otherwise told by people he trusts that you can actually do the thing he values, even if mm-hmm. you do this other thing on top of it. Um, yeah. And he walks it back about Rocco Dispirito for the same reason of like, oh, wait, it turns out this guy has merit. Like yeah. he could cook. And so. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student, but how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden, and thanks again to W.W. Norton & Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once... 
Belshanan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building, but turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. So it's okay. Um, just to jump back really quickly to other great chapters, because yes. I was reminded as you were talking about the militaristic language, the section called the level of discourse. Amazing. Um, that's like a whole chapter that's just a like deep dive crash course into kitchen jargon and mm-hmm. how they would talk to each other and what all of these things mean is just so, so good. And the, the um, version of the book that I have has... Tony's handwritten uh, notes in it. And the note at the top of that is that this chapter was left out of foreign translations because it was untranslatable. Interesting. Because <laughs> like, there's just like idiom on top of idiom and then like bastardized versions of words from different languages that it was, I, th- I guess, impossible to translate it. Like it's already enough in English. It was impossible to translate it into other ones. But I loved that. Like, And I think his appreciation for language comes out there too. Yeah. And this is one of those where it's... Again, if it was written today, especially, or not today, but like a 2018 Bourdain writing this, it wouldn't be written the same way. But I think it's worth, you can see the cracks in it a little bit. Like this, I'm on page 221 of the update edition. And he's talking about, I mean, frankly, all the sexual harassment and homophobia that's part of the discourse, much like, I guess it's a locker room talk kind of discourse he's describing. Mm -hmm. Homophobic, you say, submental, insensitive to gender preferences and the gorgeous mosaic of an ethnically diverse workforce. Gee, ellipses, you might be right. Does a locker room environment like this make it tougher for women, for instance? Yep. Most women, sadly. So he's not critiquing, he's not critiquing the language, but he does sort of, have a secondary vision of what it entails, like what it costs, at yeah, least initially. I think it's it is really interesting there that like he celebrates yes. the, that environment and that culture, and he recognizes like very few women can succeed in this place, mm-hmm. but then the ones who do are like the proto cool girls. Yes, really great, great point. That like oh the the women who succeed in these kitchens are the ones who are also like dry humping somebody against yeah, the counter right. and who who tell the dirtiest jokes and draw the ugliest pictures of your mom and like they have to participate in it. Um, there's a great piece on Eater from a couple of years back that we can link in the show notes where he reflects on that mm-hmm. and not like it's sort of or it's in 2017 Me Too has started and he's recognizing that it was a very oppressive system is the quote that he uses and that he regrets participating in it but is I think is also able to say like at the time this is just the way that things were and we're stepping out of that now and changing the way that things are and kitchens run differently like if you watch chef's table on netflix there are several episodes with female chefs who talk about very specifically running their kitchen kitchens in an intentionally different way in that that is defined in opposition to this like very masculine pirate ship 
way of doing things. And I think ultimately Anthony Bourdain would have been in favor mm-hmm. of of that. Um, but there he doesn't struggle with it on the page. No. He he likes being part of that environment. He admires the women who can endure it, um, but doesn't quite get to the place of wait we should not be constructing a situation in which like certain people have to be able to endure in order, in order to be successful. Yeah. Like he says, like, does it make it tougher? Yes, sadly. But what the system seeks, what it requires is someone and like, he's almost there. Cause he's like, he says yeah. system, like there's a systemic problem, yeah. but he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't seem to be able to say, well, wait, maybe we could change. Is that necessary? Cause it's like the, the sexual harassment, the homophobia, the misogyny, is taken as a sort of hazing mm-hmm. so that you can prove that you have what it takes to do the other things. But that's not the thing. The thing is standing on your feet and cooking. Right. And it gets all mixed up in a way that he almost here yeah. can get to, but and he can't quite get there. He really, like, that's a real part of his arc and personal yeah. evolution. I think he really struggled with labeling things, but his thinking did evolve. And Helen Rosner um, at The New Yorker wrote right after his death that she had asked him in an earlier interview if he was a feminist um, and that he sort of like got out of answering it directly that he talked about the things that he believes in he talked about like the ways the things that women should have access to and i think like at his core he was one maybe not on the page in kitchen kitchen confidential Mm. but he comes around to like truly being a feminist she bumps into him later um in like mid 2017 early 2018 at a party and he says you asked me last time we talked if i'm a feminist and i didn't answer you but i should have said yes i am and they have a whole conversation about it um and that's it's a really wonderful piece and a side of him that like it's wonderful to read Con- kitchen confidential knowing that he's going to grow to this place like this is the arc we want a person yeah. to to have to really come to awareness of like the, this thing that i participated in and that i celebrated was really harmful i regret doing it my values are different now. How can we make the system different? And I think that if he had lived longer, he would have participated in changing it. Yeah. And, you know, we have the luxury of of having experience with who he would become and how he would talk about similar kinds of issues. So it's easier for me, at least, to be more forgiving in this moment. Like, if this is the only book we ever had and this was it, it would be it doesn't tougher. Age well. It doesn't yeah. age as well. But I guess I just want to highlight, there are some cracks in the, the worldview. Like, there's a there there are... There's a little light getting in, but he's just not ready to, to kick the door down um, in his understanding of it. Now, I just want to talk about some writing, if that's all mm, right. Mm-hmm. Um, probably it is most Hunter S. Thompson-esque. You know, you, um, homage and can be a dangerous thing, but I think he sometimes does it very well. This is the beginning of Apocalypse Now, the, the chapter where he's talking about basically getting involved with organized crime. And the first sentence is, they were assembling machine guns for sale in the employee bathroom when I arrived. I mean, if that isn't a great sentence to start, <laughs> uh, yeah. a short story, a section of a memoir, a novel, that's that's a that's in media res. You're surprising. It's an employee bathroom. There's machine guns. They're in the middle of assembling it. Means there are people there putting guns together. There's really no situation which putting together guns in a bathroom makes sense. Even if you're on like an <laughs> army base, you shouldn't be doing that. So like, it's a great image. It's a really a wonderful image and a real eye for detail, but a writer's eye for this is the kind of line um, that will hook you in. But he can all and that, and that one's a marvel really of brevity. But almost a sig- the opposite of it is the signature sort of um, 
a Whitman-esque cataloging where he sometimes just repeats himself. Uh, at one point, let me see if I can find it here. Um, yeah, so this is in Food is Pain. Ticket mm-hmm. after ticket kept coming in, one on top of the other. Waiter screaming, tables of 10, tables of 6, four tops, more and more of them coming, no ebb and flow, just a relentless incoming nerve-shattering gang rush of orders. Now, if you're doing your strunk and white and you're omitted needless words, there's like 12 <laughs> things that say the same thing there, right? There's like rushing, oncoming, never stopping like we get it. Th- that's thesaurus. Bourdain at his most Baroque is a thesaurus of things in a row, but... He's not really going for exactitude. He's going for feeling. And that repetition is more about the feeling of trying to represent what it feels like, that it just won't stop. And so he keeps this, he extends the sentence a little bit longer and he accelerates, he modulates syllable length, sentence like and phrase length. So even if logically he's not actually adding any tune, it's the rhythm and the cadence. And you get that especially when he performs it because he can, he can linger or accelerate the performance in a way that you're he can't control with just your eye on the page alone so there's there's parts of it that like yeah that's probably not i'm more given writ large to a spare kind of writing mm-hmm. but that's one where you can see what's happening if it's not my particular cup of tea and again he can overdo it um <laughs> but i think at his best he's actually kind of representing the physical experience of being in the kitchen yeah and that's you what do, that's doing there i think you do really get the sense of what it would be like to be in there and it it achieves that really well i love him when the like sentimentality sort of Uh, creeps in i like the little glimpses here of the older softer bourdain that we would later get like when he's reflecting on his mentors and one of the early ones is named howard and he talks about Mm. howard loved food not just the life of the cook howard showed us how to cook for ourselves for the pure pleasure of eating not just for the tourist hordes like I oh it's just so good it's like right there with the oyster stuff and later on he talks like with some real self-awareness about I had had for some time a romantic if inaccurate view of myself as some kind of hyper violent junkie Byron Mm -hmm. and that's a real moment of like all right okay maybe you do see yourself and you do know what's also junkie Byron is a repetitive but anyway Byron (laughs) was a junkie um but that's that actually leads into another thing I like I mean for being someone without a lot of formal education, he is interested in the world of arts and letters and history. Like, and when he's describing, um, what's the guy's name? Tyrone, one of the one of the pirates mm-hmm. uh, at the Dreadnought. He was a Gargantua, a Black Viking, Conan the Barbarian, John Wayne, and the Gollum all rolled into one. So he will use his cultural and historical knowledge to kind of like help you zero in on the kind of description you know gargantua is from gargantua and panagrel and that's 15th century novels by rabelais and then also movies from the 50s and the Gollum is both you know he was culturally jewish though not practicing Gollum is lord of the rings but also there's a history of Gollum's in judaism conan the barbarian is a movie it's just he he will do things like that of trying to mix cultural references as a way of describing this new part of life, you know, trying to use things that people might understand to describe something they don't, which is one yeah. of his moves too. Yeah. And I think kind of a polymath or polymath adjacent in the best, like most interesting way a person yeah. can be where like, there's a version of this guy who's read a bunch of things and just wants to tell you mm-hmm. how many cultural references he can pack into a sentence, but it doesn't come off that way at all. Like, I think there's a real delight here and you really do get it from folks who were autodidacts and taught it themselves, the things that they know, like he knows what he knows because he was curious and cared about going and reading and learning and finding these things out. And it, 
I think that delight comes through of like, here are all the things Tyrone reminded me of. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, he can be very specific and unadorned in a way of just describing just sort of a catalog of description that's more Whitman-esque than Thompsonian. Like, so this is also from Food is Sex, we're describing the Dreadnought people. In the kitchen, they were like gods. They dressed like pirates. Chef's coats with the arms slashed off, blue jeans, ragged and faded headbands, gore-covered aprons, gold hoop earrings, wrist cuffs, turquoise necklaces and chokers, rings of scrimshaw and ivory tattoos, all of the decorative detritus of the long-past summer of love. It's just wonderful stuff. It's just a list of what they were wearing, but presented in a way and with a little flourish at the end to give it context and commentary. Um, That's just so, such a delight. Um, And for nonfiction about daily stuff, it's kind of as good as it gets, you know, for this Mm -hmm. kind of kinetic writing. There's a different kind, you know, you can have your Susan Orleans. It's a little more studied. This is also great. But the kineticism of Bourdain is, I think, part of it. Um, And I don't know if that's by personality or forged in the always already movement of the kitchen. Um, But it comes comes across on the sentence level, which is part of what makes it work. What else should we say? I'm kind of out of my best things to say. I've I've shot all my bullets so far. Uh, there's a great little moment near the end of the book where he's predicting that if he ever hits the big time, I'll mm. be mugging. <laughs> I'll be mugging it up on the Food Network, schmoozing at the Beard Awards dinner, and contemplating a future where I'd never have to get out of my pajamas. And it's like either he already knows that that's not true about himself, but it's just a good sentence, or he really did not anticipate what fame I don't and think access do you, would do, you really would do think for him. Did? Like, I, I don't know. Like no. it's, this is not at all what he did with fame and no. access. You know, right. he was just had an incredible work ethic. And by like all of the stories that came out from people who worked with him and encountered him after he died, there are things like he was always 10 minutes early to an interview. And he remembered the names of like every journalist he ever spoke to and gave every interview that he was mm asked to and was sort of unfailingly generous and a really hard worker and like this notion this the notion that he entertains a future for himself where he's just like Hugh Heffnering it up sitting around in his pajamas is uh, it was just like well okay you had no idea what was going to happen to you I was just really struck reading it about like it's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine like one of the questions we usually talk about on a show like this is like, would this book get published today and how would it be received? And there's like a chicken and egg situation with that answer here, because this was really the first of its kind. And it's, so it's only meaningful in a world that hasn't already read a book like this. Well, since in the world of food writing, we're living in the world of kitchen confidential. Like it's like saying, what what would Western literature be like without Shakespeare? It's like, well, okay, sure. What would I be like if my name was Helen and I grew up in, um, Portugal. I'd I'd be just, I'd be different. All these, right. All these great chef memoirs that we've gotten, like Blood Bones and Butter is like one of the best ones. All these great chef memoirs that have come out, I think, undeniably exist because of Kitchen Confidential. It's the book that launched a thousand chef memoirs. And like, it's just impossible to conceive of a, a culinary literary landscape today that isn't shaped by the existence of this book. And even my, like a very critical part of my own reading life and my, mm-hmm. like my person, like who I am and the way that I love food and travel and think about what food and cooking mean. It's just inextricable from the seeds that kitchen confidential 
planted. And so for like for the ways that it's imperfect and for the ways that it doesn't age well, and I think you're right that we get to give those more grace than we would otherwise because we know how Tony turns out. Mm-hmm. We know the trajectory that he travels. Like I I think I'll keep going back to this book and I think I will keep loving it and I'll keep rereading that oyster passage because it just did something so important for the very first time and and he did that for millions of readers. You know, it's do you have the 2006 afterword in that edition? Yeah. Did you have that where he's writing from Bali in 2006? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a wild document in itself. Did you yeah. did you note that at all? Like just the mm-hmm. end how this I mean, we just talked about the good place 47 minutes ago, but the, even though people won't hear this. And I was struck reading this cuz I I'd seen the good place recently. He's talking about this is 6 years later, he's in Bali. He's just said the thing I said a little bit earlier about he he can't really see himself happy in New York anymore. Biographically, he's just divorced Nancy, his wife of 20 years mm-hmm. at this moment. He doesn't ever mention it in the afterward. Um, Since all my dreams came true, I've had to make adjustments. I have to make them every day. My people skills, but beyond telling them what to do or being told what to do and talking shit, weren't the best after 28 years plus in the life. They still aren't. It says something about me, I think, that I'm most at ease these days at my most relaxed when alone in a smoking room in an airport lounge, coming from somewhere nice on my way to another. Muzak playing innocuously in the background, a nice orderly itinerary in one hand telling me what to do, when to do it and where, a drink or cigarette in the other, and I'm good. I'm free, as it were, of the complications of normal human entanglements, untormented by the beauty, complexity, and challenge of a big, magnificent and often painful world. Mm. Human behavior remains a mystery to me. What do you do with that? What is that, Rebecca? I mean... I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't know. Like, he's trying to... I think the the super text is the ellipses and I'm good, but he's not good there. In the airport lounge smoking cigarettes? Like, that's the good place for him? I don't get it. I mean, and I'm not exasperated because I think he's wrong or it's bad. Like... There's something evocative to me that I'm I can't grasp. I think there's his life and his work are defined by this per, that search for the yeah. next thing, but it's really just the search for the thing. Like he's looking for what's going to make me feel good. And the answers to that are not always wholesome, and I think really the answers to that are not always available to him. Like he doesn't ever hit on it. No really on um, like what is the deeply like personally satisfying happy thing and is this happy thing like is happiness even available right to me as a person and i think we we know that there was mental health stuff going on now that perhaps it like systemically wasn't available right. to him maybe it wasn't that like this is really indicative of like the best it gets for you is the airport lounge. Like I spend a lot of time in airport lounges and that is an existential sinkhole. That's <laughs> the, that's the middle place, right? The medium yeah. place. It's like a medium place situation. <laughs> yeah. 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 That he, I think knew that he was looking for something sort of perpetually. Um, but man, that, yeah, that last afterward. Is <laughs> it's, it is wild to look at now. And that's the coda he chose to append when given the chance to, his formative work, because he's not saying other people's behavior remains a mystery to me. Human behavior remains a mystery to me, which I think he's saying I remain a mystery to myself mm-hmm. in yes, some degree yeah, there. I think so. Um, 
I was haunted by that much in the same way I'm haunted. I mean, haunted's in it, but like the last sentence of a river runs through it. I'm haunted mm. by waters. That's a place of, of deep turbulence, right? Um, yeah. In its own way. And well, you mentioned, you know, in the good place, they talk about, well, you, you brought up the idea that what they find ultimately is not happiness, but meaning he doesn't seem to be, he, he not only has he not found the meaning that matters to him, but he does, he's not even on the hunt for it. He doesn't even know to be looking for meaning. He is happy when he's coming from someplace and he's knowing where he's going next without ever having to pause and be nowhere for a moment, right? Mm-hmm. Without ever just be himself and quiet. And I'm not sure, it doesn't sound like he was a great meditator, I would guess. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe that would have been helpful. But like the, the being in process of knowing what's next and knowing where he just was, rather than that's not, that's like, Exploratory. It's like cocaine of exploration. Like a, well, it's, a, it's just that kind of always looking for the next thing. I well, guess and, and it's like workaholism as avoidance of having to sit still. Right. You know, like right. He he talks about that some. Like it is interesting because I think if you could just watch like no reservations and really watch parts unknown and ask like what is this guy's meaning that the external answer is like well this person constructs meaning in their life by like mm-hmm. by hearing people's stories and drawing attention to the importance of culture and what it means to value culture and travel and the appreciation of how diverse and different the world is like, there's a big, wide, wonderful world out there and you can go experience it and look at these experiences that you can have. And he's like telling his audience that this is how they will find meaning, but it never quite clicks that, that this is his meaning as well. And the, and he does talk about perpetual motion and always working and always thinking about work and that his wife, when they're still together, is mad at him because he's like running through ingredients lists in his head and not actually listening to her and not actually engaging. And like, not for nothing, this makes it super fascinating that Eric Repair, who is a practicing Buddhist, becomes Anthony's best friend, mm. like that he's drawn to that, like to this person who is quiet and has this real quality of stillness and carefulness and like very thoughtful about his actions and the implications of his actions. And like, what does it mean to be a Buddhist who works in a restaurant that serves seafood and mm. and, and that, you know, you're serving dead animals? How does that square with his practices? And I like I this is the thing that I think I w- would have wished for in the next 20 years of Bourdain career is Mm. like more self-exploration, like turn it inwards. Cause that lens and that voice and the awareness that he brings when he's looking out at the world is so powerful and so interesting and turned inwards or maybe like turned inwards along like him and repair writing together or on a tour together or like really getting into like, what are the ways that they see the world and what are they reflecting back to each other could have been so powerful. And like that's, I think that's the thing that I'm sad yeah. I didn't get. Right. Yeah. And you know, I was thinking about the Guy Fieri when you mentioned that because I used to watch some diners, drive-ins, and dive, and it's one of those things. Oh, once you've seen who six, among us has not? Well, once you've seen six, you've kind of seen them all, right? <laughs> yeah. But the oh, yeah. thing I think he, uh, let me put it this way: what you don't get in Bourdain and Kitchen Conventionally, and I don't remember anywhere else because I've read all of it and I could have missed it. You don't get him expressing the pleasure of seeing a patron eat the food that he made and enjoying it. Mm. That's not part of the joy of what he likes to do. The thing he likes to do is be in the kitchen with a bunch of people he respects, working hard in the middle of a crazy night. The story of his cooking ends when he spins the the, the plate onto the shelf and picks the dupe and puts it on the spike. That's yeah. where it ends. It, 
And one thing you can't miss if you watch any diner drive and dive when, you know, Fury's in the middle of Idaho at some hash joint is that a lot of those people out there that find meaning in what they do are are focused on, you know, I do it because people like my food. I like feeding people. And that part he seems to miss. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if his experience would have been different if finding comfort and joy and meaning and pleasure and being of service to other people like that would have been helpful. But that did strike me of like, this is kitchen confidential. It's not restaurant confidential. It's not yeah. eating confidential. It's behind the lines, but the line is super important to him. And it's a demarcation of where he's not, he's not really interested in the, the role of the diner. One of the attractions of it as a diner is you feel like you're getting an inside soup because Bourdain doesn't care about you as a mm. diner, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some, there's some sort of negging going on there, I guess, of some kind, but like <laughs> he doesn't, the value of the work is not feeding 300 people who are thrilled to do it. It's getting through the night, which yeah, is interesting. And- Really, the only time he talks about pleasure in feeding people is in his cookbook, Appetites, Mm. which came out a couple years ago. And the food in that book is really different from the food that he cooked professionally. And the whole setup of the cookbook is like, here is what I cooked in my off time for the people that I love on a Sunday afternoon. And he writes about that and like food and cooking as an act of care for those people and like the gathering mm-hmm. of that, but you're right. I hadn't even really, I hadn't thought about that, that mm-hmm. the thing that so many chefs talk about of like making something and seeing the thing you've made, give someone else pleasure. Yeah. is completely absent here. It's just the work itself that right. seems to drive him. And that's a Johnny Ringo thing. Like there's, a, there's no amount of um, busy Saturday nights at La Hall making steak frites. That's going to fill up whatever you're trying to fill with that. I think, um, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, anyway. Wow. This was something Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing to come back and read it. I'm not sure we've got too many candidates like this. You know, how many of these do we get to talk about? I mean, a, a real pleasure and privilege to yeah. to look at it for a few minutes with you. Um, yeah, so it was really nice. Thanks for agreeing to do it. Um, if you've got other candidates, um, let us know. Uh, but it's it's going to be hard pressed to find one that's as as meaningful and sad and feels so. It has such gravitas now. It really does um, now. Yeah, in a way that's it's hard hard to see. Um, What's the next bonus episode after this? You can do your Jurassic homework Park. if you want. Amanda joined us. We already have it in the can. Um, we read and talked about the 1990 novel and 1993 super mega blockbuster. It's a, it goes with ca- it goes with Kitchen Confidential on my shelf, my personal shelf. Of oh yeah, things. Yes. I don't think it's quite as evocative in its own way. Um, but it certainly is important to me. So go go <laughs> read and watch the, that. The 90 most fun minutes we will ever have at work. <laughs> <laughs> we still have Field of Dreams. Oh, you mean, you mean not crying? <laughs> right, right. Okay, all right. We'll talk to you guys later. Have a good one.